0: Over seven million different animals inhabit our planet.
1: Yeah, really exciting because the Eastern Barred Bandicoot is also on French Island and Churchill Island as well. So a few different locations and of course...
0: What can they teach us? They, their immune genetics were very diverse from each other. And the ones that smelled worse to them, they graded them and was like, oh, that smell is awful. The researchers have discovered that the immune genetics were very similar. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to our creatures podcast. This is Chris,
1: and I'm Angie.
0: So heading back down under, we always I say that every time we go back to Australia, <laughs> my neighbor.
1: I know, Chris. I'm so excited. I'm literally smiling ear to ear right now. We love our Australian animals and our friends in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, This episode is definitely dedicated to the one and only Chantel. Yes, yes. So we have to thank her for recommending this species Mm -hmm. and really opening my eyes up to the incredible survivors of extinction that we're going to talk about today with the Eastern Barred Bandicoot. Their conservation story is one that you will not want to miss. So thank you, Chantel, for, for, yeah, for suggesting this. You're a dear friend and a huge part of this podcast. So thank you.
0: Yeah, she has. She's been a great friend for quite a while, you know, uh, supporting the podcast through the years and, you know... uh, and now just a close friend. And we just recently did a Patreon live where she came on and, and she suggested the bandicoot and their conservation story, which I'm excited to talk about because I wasn't aware of it. So that's what makes this a fun one.
1: Well, yeah. And and for those of you that are not in Australia, um, you might not be familiar with the bandicoot and we'll describe it and, and of course, put pictures in our show notes. But for, for our Australian friends, they really are an icon there. And the story of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot is really one of hope and amazing conservation efforts. So, yeah, it's just going to be a really fun podcast today, learning about how bandicoots are super important for the environment, They're ecosystem engineers, and there's several species of them throughout Australia and New Guinea. Mm -hmm. So we could almost have like a five-month period dedicated just to different (laughs) – Bandicoot species, which right before Chris and I went on air, I'm like, Do you have it all ironed out? Because I have like five slides, and <laughs> yeah, I'm, there's a lot. There's I'm gonna lot. need your help trying to figure out the bandicoot family. Uh, but yes, it's just I learned a lot this week, and hopefully that'll come across on the podcast. And and everybody who's not familiar with bandicoots will fall in love with them. I, I learned about um, a video game, Crash mm-hmm, Bandicoot, mm-hmm. yep, 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 uh, yep, about it. So yep. we'll chat about that, and uh, yeah, it should be fun.
0: Yeah, I know that's one of Pip's favorite games, and my kids play it. It's tough. It's tough. It's kind of like Mario, the old Nintendo, uh, you know, back in the day, and uh, is a very popular game, and uh, it has a fun story. So we'll get there. We'll get there. Now Bandicoot, when you when you when we do our research and you read this, it's actually a translation from the South Indian language of Telugu, and it means pig rat. So when you think of a bandicoot, you do think of rodents, don't you? But they're marsupial.
1: Yes, Chris, that's actually a good segue into describing them because I definitely get a little bit of the rodent um, vibe from looking at them, except for bandicoots have a really long, pointed, almost conical or cone-shaped snout. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they definitely have, a, depending on the species, a little bit of a rat like tail some have fur on it some have very very light fur but bandicoots have these strong hind legs that are designed for jumping they're almost like they like miniature kangaroo legs i mean they really really are long so they're they're a mismatch of everything um they're they're bigger than a rat uh depending on the species that you're looking at but for me, what's most striking, and for all the species of bandicoots that there are, is just this long V-shaped conical nose. I mean, they mm-hmm. are—they have a prominent schnoz. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or, yes, they do. They do. Or proboscis, or uh, that's probably the more technical science term.
0: That's interesting. you do talk about the different sizes, because they—you know—the there are certain species that are that are smaller and then bigger, right? So the eastern bard, where do they fall in?
1: Chris, I would say they fall about in the middle with the smallest bandicoot being the golden bandicoot, which only weighs 300 grams or 0.66 pounds, very Uh, tiny, fit in your little hand, where a large bandicoot is going to be the northern brown bandicoot. And like I said, we'll focus today on the eastern barn bandicoot, and they're about four and a half pounds, two kilos. so. Bigger than a rat. I don't want to see a five pound rat.
0: No, 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 no. <laughs> like a small house here. cat.
1: Like a small house cat. Yeah, yeah. that's how. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's how one of the websites described yeah. them. So, uh, a medium size, and they're anywhere from uh, eleven to thirty-one inches in length. But I do think the eastern Bard is one of the more beautiful bandicoots. They're super cute in general with that just that long pointed snout. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very elongated, slender, but with the eastern bandicoot. They have a pink nose with uh whiskers on their muzzle. They have prominent ears. Now they're somewhere they're larger than a typical rodent ear, but definitely smaller than a rabbit. So right. somewhere yeah. somewhere in between, but on the larger side, I suppose. And then the coat of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot is gonna be grayish brown. It's very soft. And on its hindquarters, like from its hip back. It has these characteristic bars, which hence its name, mm-hmm. that are pale or whitish in color. It almost looks like stripes. And then basically counter shading because then there's also three to four dark horizontal bars uh, to really make, to really give them this almost striped like rump appearance. Their belly is going to be light cream uh, to whitish in color. And then the tail is about 100 millimeters meters in length so there's other bandicoots that have a longer tail and then the billibees, which is a family related to the uh bandicoots which chris will talk a lot about they have longer tails and longer ears yeah yeah. so the uh the eastern bar bandicoot yeah it's a medium a medium-sized tail nothing too striking but definitely not short
0: yeah, they don't look anything like the game Crash Bandicoot. Did they do that? No, they <laughs> don't. But they're da, da, da.
1: super cute. They are, I mean, they are. I watch a lot of videos, especially mm-hmm. with the Eastern Bard, because they're doing all these amazing conservation efforts in Australia and Tasmania. And so, and seeing them kind of move and hop around uh, and just their fur and their just that long nose is just, it's very, very iconic. It's a nose that everyone should love
0: yeah 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 they are adorable they are adorable it, it, and it, it's because there are 20 species and we didn't you know we're, we're focusing on the eastern bard but we are trying to to cover general knowledge about bandicoots because uh you know it, this applies to a lot of them so the bilbies are like angie said they're they're close cousins just longer longer ears
1: uh pretty and cute too yeah
0: they are very cute so, the short nosed bandicoots is from the subfamily Isodons, and then the long nosed bandicoots are the Parameles. So, the living species of the Paramels or Parameles, uh, however you say it, uh, is the Western barred bandicoot, which are doing okay. It's the Eastern barred bandicoots that were extinct in the wild and are coming back. And then you had the long nosed bandicoot. Then there was the desert bandicoot, which is probably extinct. And then you also have the Pigfooted bandicoot, which is probably extinct now too.
1: Um, Yeah, that one hasn't been seen for yeah quite a while. 20s. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, and then there's some others in New Guinea. And I don't mean 2020s. (laughs) No, no, I know 1920s. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: I'm so old. I actually have to like say that. You know.
0: Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, I know. I know. (laughs) But in the in the 20th century, uh, a couple species went extinct. Where a lot of these species live, the a lot of them live in New Guinea. And then a lot live in Australia. So the, the striped or giant bandicoots li- live in New Guinea. And then you have the long-nosed and northern brown, southern brown, western bard, eastern bard, and even more living in Australia. And then you did have a subspecies of eastern bard living in Tasmania. So when the eastern bard went extinct on the mainland, there was only a few left in Tasmania. So that's where we find these species, these marsupials. Now... Why care Angie is it's whenever I go to Australia, you know, a couple years ago we had those horrific fires and we have given some updates where I, I, I think that's in the feeling I got reading this story about the, the, the Eastern barred bandicoots and conservation in Australia that really woke up the populace there, you know, the, the, the 20 plus million people that live in Australia wanting to protect their wildlife, wanting to protect their their backyards their habitat i really got a feeling like since those fires and maybe i can talk more about chantelle uh, when i talk to her one-on-one again is or during one of our patreon lives because she came on i'd like to talk to her maybe next month when we do that again uh, we can ask her you know what's the feeling there in australia about conserving your your, your native wildlife because i feel like they are caring, right? Like, why care about a bandicoot?
1: I mean, besides it's so darling. Yes,
0: always. <laughs> That's always the answer. That's always our default.
1: <laughs> it's always. it's uh, so you. It's just really unique. Uh, I know we'll talk about an evolution too. It's an ancient creature. Um, obviously, there's lots of marsupials down in Australia, but the bandicoot plays a really important role as an ecosystem engineer, and the way that they do this is the bandicoot with that long nose, uh, they're looking for insects. So they're omnivores, and we'll talk a lot about their nutrition, but they're always looking for beetles and grubs, lots of invertebrates in the soil. And when they are nosing around for uh, their dinner and snacks, they basically turn over or act as a natural till for all the leaves in the soil on the ground, which is really important for twofold reasons. Number one, it helps things grow, right? Every farmer knows that. Till the soil, mix it up, helps things grow. But number two is this tilling, bringing up some of the damp soil and the damp leaves reduces dry spots in areas throughout the forest floor or wherever they're living, which can act as fuel for fires. And so the less dry spots there are, the less fuel there is during fire season. So, it adds a huge benefit to the forest or to the habitat that they're living in. Uh, And then they also spread spores of several different species of fungus around. And man, Chris and I are not cool enough to talk about plants, let alone <laughs> fungus. I yeah, wish we yeah. were. I wish yeah, we were. Yeah. If it's like even even when we do invertebrates or uh, even fish and stuff like that, it's like, man, I got to stay in my lane and do these mammals. But in general, everybody should love the fungus among us because they <laughs> act as decomposers <laughs> in the forest. And they're yes. really important, and I just did not give them enough credit even there. So and I'm not I I apologize to any expert out there. The bandicoots do a great job. They're really important. And they also eat a lot of these bugs and grubs and beetles that can also harm crops and fields for farmers. So they act as a way to keep the insect load down um, in areas where insects aren't necessarily wanted. So just really, really, really important. And I think it's so incredible that Australia is working so hard to bring the eastern barred bandicoot back from being extinct in the wild so yeah it's just i mean it uh they're really important
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting to talk about that till in the soil i mean we didn't even you know i was i was just thinking of the fires and then yeah you're right if these animals are a check to possibly that you know less things to burn but you know every every species has their niche and 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 here's one that you know not other species can fill it they they just can't fill it and so there's going to be a, a whole catastrophic up and down effect right
1: oh yeah I mean, I mean when you think of their uh nose they actually look it's it, i mean that's how a tiller is right like if yeah, you yeah. if you i mean of course a lot of uh a lot of um, farmers are now using tractors to till and stuff like that. But if there is a hand till that a, a, a layperson like myself might have for the garden, it kind of looks like their little nose. So that's what they're doing. You know, it's amazing.
0: Yeah, one of the descriptions I saw was like
1: calling them like an elephant shrew,
0: mm-hmm, which, which mm-hmm. is a species it, we should
1: cover at some point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, there's so yeah. much out there. But yes, and I know. Yeah. Uh, and I was reading. You can always tell if you have a bandicoot in your yard if you live in Australia because they leave like little holes. In the, you know, in the dirt, and that's the sign that they were there looking for insects the night before, which would be so cool. So if you're from Australia, send photos if you have uh, bandicoot holes in your yard. I would love to see that.
0: Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, and then taking how, you know, across the board, a lot of bandicoot uh, populations are, are way down to when they were uh, before Europeans arrived in Australia, obviously, you know, but through conservation efforts, populations are increasing. And that is especially true of the Eastern barred like we've talked about. So this was a species that was extinct in the wild. In 1989, there was fewer than 150 of Eastern barred bandicoots left. And then in 2013, they were completely extinct in the wild. Now zoos Victoria had in you know in collaboration with conservation you know organizations there in Australia, but mainly zoos Victoria had these emergency population. And then just really quickly, zoos Victoria is a collab is a, a conglomerate of zoos. So you have the Melbourne Zoo, which is down where Chantel lives. You have the Werribee Open Rain Zoo and the Hillsville Sanctuary. So there's zoos in Victoria in Australia.
1: Yes, and there's a lot of NGOs and also the University of Melbourne. Uh, there's a lot of collaboration uh, in these conservation groups that really worked their butts off for the past 30 years mm-hmm. or so, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. yeah. To bring the Eastern Bar bandicoot back from pretty much fun- functional extinction. Yeah, yeah.
0: Yeah, they're completely extinct in the wild. And these zoos had... Had had the eastern barred bandicoots under their care as this emergency population, and the eastern bars went extinct. They, they, they a lot of it was not only habitat loss, predators, so foxes. We've talked about this before in uh, Australia and like here in New Zealand. So introduced feral cats, feral cats, very bad, and a lot of overgrazing of the eastern grey kangaroos so a lot of their native grasslands where the eastern bard lived now bandicoots can live in all sorts of different environments deserts uh, swamps forests but the eastern bard primarily was these native grasslands in australia and so they went extinct in the wild
1: and so zoos victoria and their collaborators basically were able to get 19 to 23 founders that were brought um, under human care in the 1990s, the last known wild populations of them anywhere, and for the past yeah 30 years, uh, a multi-million dollar uh, campaign in collaboration to start this captive breeding program of the eastern barred bandicoots and then start rewilding them. It's just incredible. I have goosebumps right now. It, I mean their estimated population now is about
0: 1500. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you know like the the black-footed ferrets, yes. other stories we've talked about where you know they were extinct in the wild and mm-hmm. zoos were able to in the United States keep these emergency populations and learn how to breed them and breed yes. them and now they're out back in the wild. You worked on some of that stuff, you know, when you were at uh, Lincoln Park Zoo, you you had friends working on those projects. Oh,
1: yes. Yeah. Still uh, one of my dear friends is still always, always going out to the Colorado to uh, work with uh, the black footed Ferrets. Uh, Dr. Rachel Santemeyer, we had her on the episode. Boy, that was earlier on. She was one of my friends. I was like, please come on my podcast. (laughs) She's amazing. She's still my mentor. We talk all the time. Uh, And she has me working on another side ferret project for her. Don't you worry. Um, So yeah, it's, and that's, and this is very similar in, in, uh, but for Australia, this was like an incredible first because the Eastern bar bandicoot went from being extinct in the wild to now being considered endangered. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's just, uh, it's just a really moving story. And We're simplifying it in like this two to three minute segment and it it really deserves a lot more time because it is uh, such an accomplishment and my hats go off to all these people that collaborated for over 30 years and are figuring out all all the different aspects of it because sometimes – some of the locations they put them in earlier on, it didn't really work very well. And so now they they have these reintroduction programs and populations on Phillip Island. Uh, and that's where the little blue penguin populations are.
0: Yep. 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 Uh,
1: I, I forget which episode that is, but we covered them not too long ago. Yeah. Um, so go back go back in the queue a little bit oh, and check out. You're, you're
0: making me jump. You're making me jump. Episode 22 was with uh, Dr. Rachel Sattemeyer.
1: Okay, so mm-hmm. there
0: you go, and then the little blue penguins were episode two sixty two. So okay. we write just those had numbers them. down unless yeah. you're driving. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> twenty two. <laughs> and then definitely don't be
1: don't 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 scroll while you're driving either through yeah, yeah. the whatever pod app podcast app you use, but. Yeah, really exciting because the eastern barred bandicoot is also on French Island and Churchill Mm -hmm. Island as well. So a few different locations, and of course, they're very careful where they release them. They're usually in predator-free areas um, that don't have the foxes. A lot of them are Finston, and they really they monitor the population and. And because of using science and genetics mm-hmm. and stud books and trying to maintain the most genetic diversity when you're only dealing with twenty-three individuals or 19 or whatever the starting number was, you have to be very, very careful that the population doesn't become too inbred. And they've done a great job with this with the Eastern Bard Bandicoot because the Captive program has positive growth rates and basically close to 96 percent of um a genetic diversity between individuals. And Zoo Australia and their collaborators have done an amazing job with the captive breeding program because they have positive growth rates. Obviously, if they're going to go from like 20 individuals to 1,500. Uh, and they have uh, 95.6% of wild source gene diversity retained. So they're keeping them genetically diverse and keeping the genes similar to what they would be um, in the wild. Yeah. And they are back in the wild. And so it was really exciting for me um, as a scientist doing a little bit of research about Eastern barred bandicoots because when I opened up their uh PubMed or Google Scholar uh searches, just looking to see what's been done. Since 2018, there's just several, several articles published. I'm going to talk about one in reproduction because, you know, you know me. I love reproduction. Yeah, yeah. Uh, But just several ones about um, what's the recovery of the mainland subspecies of the eastern bandicoot, uh, predicting suitable release sites um, for assisted colonizations, a case study comparing the population ecology of the eastern barred bandicoot um, on different island reintroductions, What I'm trying to say in a very unorganized way, which I apologize for, is that I think the Eastern Barred Bandicoot is an example of leading the way in reintroduction research. Mm -hmm. I would say, and this might be naive, and so if there's a researcher out there, I apologize, but... 30, 40 years ago, we weren't talking about reintroduction research. I would, When I was an undergrad, that that was not a major. I probably would have picked that as a major. Mm-hmm. Uh, I picked zoology and then animal science later on for grad school. But scientists and zoos and, um, and NGOs and conservation groups are really trying to figure out not only the best way to save species from extinctions when they are under human care through captive breeding programs, maintaining ge- genetic diversity, which is not easy, but then also, okay, how do we reintroduce them and how do we get better at it? And yeah. that's the thing with science is like they, they made mistakes in the program uh, as far as maybe releasing them in an area where, you know, they just, they didn't get the return rates. Um, yeah. They didn't do well in that area. Uh, and so, but they're learning, and they're learning how to do it, and they're stu- they're using science, they're not using guesswork, and they're reporting their science. So another species in peril in New Guinea or in the United States or anywhere can potentially use the Eastern Bar Bandicoot methodology, and help the species that they're trying to reintroduce. So I'm just really excited about this reintroduction research, as you can tell.
0: No, no, it <laughs> sorry is, to it, dork
1: out about it, but it was, no, really, no, you know, it's, something, I, we, it's been a we theme do this, lately. We do this yeah. every week. And sometimes you yeah. go, you, you go to like Google scholar and look for a species. And there's literally like something from like a paper from like 1934. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, know, that's I, know. It. I know. And that's yeah. good. I mean, it's good. It's still good data. They did good science, you know, back in the day. And, and, but it just was, It was just very hopeful for me as part as they're not only reintroducing the Eastern Bar Bandicoot so they can live free in the wild um, where they should be being the ecosystem engineers, but that they're also learning how to do it better and they're sharing Mm. that in a scientific way. So well, it's been way a way to go Australia. Yeah, I yeah. Love it's,
0: I it's, love been, it's been kind of a, a topic in our podcast lately because we we did that with oh the links. I think it was the, the links we did over Christmas. We we talked a little bit about that. That you know, we were episode two fifty seven, December first of last year. We talked a little bit about reintroduction. And then when we went and did Crows. Which was episode 269, because I'm looking at, you know, on my slide, Hawaiian crows. We talked about they reintroduced them in the wild, but they failed. And they brought them back in under human care. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about this reintroduction, you know, uh, science, like you were talking about. It's so important. Mm-hmm. It's so important.
1: Yeah, and the paper, if you stick with us, the paper I'm going to talk about um, towards the end of the podcast during reproduction is even – more science on how, um, Eastern barred bandicoots select mates and maybe we should give them more choices because when we give them more choices, the data is showing us that they have more offspring and the offspring has more survivorship. So yeah, I mean, I just, I just love to see the data and, 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 in, in ways that are helping, helping these animals. It's really exciting.
0: And then just to kind of wrap this all up, Angie. I, I, you know, other animals that were extinct in the wild. I was, I was thinking about this because the the Eastern bard just had such a great story. So Hawaiian crow, go listen to that crow episode. We've gotten a lot of great feedback on that one too. People are just blown away about how intelligent they are.
1: Uh, I'm like I'm, I never I a crow the same after listening to that podcast. I'm no, like, I know. Me episode, neither.
0: Yeah, episode two sixty nine, uh, the scimitar horned oryx. I know that was one we, we wanted to uh, look at. There's only you know they're extinct in the wild, but there's about eighteen hundred left in zoos and protected parks. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's one. I got one. to work
1: with the Arabian orcs, So yes, yeah, they have Very a similar. huge, yeah. huge place in my heart.
0: Yeah. And then there's the Pair David's deer, uh, once only held in zoos. Now they're being reintroduced uh, in, in Asia. The Spix's macaw, that was a very interesting one because I just saw in the last few weeks that they're reintroducing them in Brazil. I think I mentioned it to you a couple of weeks ago about a bird. Oh, yeah, Maybe yeah we should I think in. an yeah. article or something. Yeah, wasn't it like they're on the that coastal range, uh, I think,
1: uh, yeah, uh, we're the gold lion tamarins. Yeah,
0: we were talking just talking about that. We we're just talking about that. So they're being reintroduced, and then uh, Wyoming toad and some others. So, so zoos are 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 really doing an important uh, job. So zoos, Victoria, hats off to you. This is why Angie and I, you know, talk about what you do all the time because we really believe in this mission of saving these endangered animals and then reintroducing them. So fascinating, fascinating stuff
1: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
0: Now, shifting gears, evolution, we've done marsupials, but again, I'll kind of go through it because it's always so fascinating, marsupials. They're cool. They're so
1: ancient.
0: They are. And they they started in the Americas and then they made Mm -hmm. it their way to Australia. It just blows the mind. So marsupials are mammals. Okay, so we have over 5,500 species of mammals. Then, when you get in the infra class, because mammals are a class, the infra, infra class marsupialae, uh, marsupialae, there's 334 species. 70% live in Australia and nearby, like in New Guinea, which i tree kangaroos, one we got to do too, I know soon. 30% you live haven't in done South tree
1: America. tree kangaroos
0: yet? No, I know. it's. I was told Pip yesterday, I'm like, oh, we got to do this one? Because we were watching a, a show. I was doing my research on marsupials. And I was like, oh, we're going to do that That'll one. That'll be fun. Oh, we John can one. come
1: on and yeah, they yeah. have uh, them at his zoo.
0: Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Uh, so then 30% of marsupials live in South America, 13 species in Central America, and then one species in North America, north of Mexico, which is our very own Virginia opossum or opossums in, that's episode 169. Very, very fun. Now, bandicoots in the marsupials, the order is paramilomorphia. So, this is the bandicoots and bilbies. And there's only 22 species. So, you know, no order you see depends on the, the animal we're talking about. You can have thousands of species or like here, 22 the family is paramelidae and this is the 20 species of bandicoots. Now, within the families, the subfamilies, there's three subfamilies, and I'll just, basically, I've already c- talked about the short-nosed bandicoots. There's three species. The long-nosed bandicoots, three species. Then the next subfamily is the New Guinea long-nosed bandicoots. There's two species. And then the final subfamily, well, there's a new one now, which I'll talk about here in a second, the crash. But the other subfamily is the New Guinea spiny bandicoots, mouse bandicoots, and then the serum bandicoots, which lives on an island in Indonesia. So New Guinea has, what is that, five, 13 of the 20 species, and then six or seven in Australia. Again, two, the pig-nosed and the desert bandicoots are believed to be extinct Uh, we're also from australia now what i love about (laughs) what i love about the marsupial story is how they originated in the Americas so long ago so the earliest mammal we know was like 200 million years ago was a shrew uh, and then survived through dinosaurs for 140 million years somehow And about 125 million years ago is when marsupials split from these early mammal ancestors and went from the Americas through Antarctica up into Australia. You know, in this incredible, I know this Gondwana. I, I, I,
1: hundred million years.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because I was, you know, Antarctica didn't become covered in ice until about 35 million years ago. So. The placental mammals never had a chance to make it over to Australia because they might have been in Antarctica, but by the time uh, they might have, they they couldn't make it to Australia because like they said, the ship had already sailed, the the land bridge was long gone, and now Australia was migrating north. Now, the closest relatives to bandicoots we know are the bilbies, and then also you have the uh, wallabies. So there's a whole bunch of wallabies that, that we can uh, talk to talk about, but just such a fascinating uh, family of, of mammals. All of these.
1: Well, and uh, it's probably marsupials. because I'm I'm from the U.S. and not as familiar with all the different mammals that live in Australia. But I just love this this week learning all about bilbies, and I mean, I mean, I, I know of wallabies, but still, I just didn't realize how many different species there were of bandicoots, and yeah. yeah. Yes, lot, so, lots, lots to cover for sure. There is, there
0: is. I mean, we have possums—not opossums, but possums. I want to cover because they're such a menace here in New Zealand, but they're an amazing species in Australia, you know, where they belong, or some of the islands in Indonesia, New Guinea. Uh, Rat kangaroos, little ones, you know, and one we've got to cover maybe soon is a sugar glider because we've been on this flying kick.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) So there's so many fascinating marsupials. It is, it's awesome. It's awesome.
1: I know. We should make this our full time job, Chris.
0: We're getting there. We're getting there. We have some big developments coming that we'll announce in the next few weeks. All right, bandicoots. The oldest fossil we have is around 20, 25 million years. So you're right. This is a. This is a a survivor. This is a a species that has been around for a long, long time. Now, I mentioned Crash Bandicoot. I guess it's it's, it's a good one to to kind of bring up here because we didn't really talk about why care where the Crash Bandicoot, there is a extinct species of bandicoot that is named Crash, but they discovered it in 2014. It's around 15 million years old. they named it crash because of the video game and really quick before we jump into physiology where crash bandicoot it's kind of a fun little history Sony entertainment was developing this video game in the nineties and you had Sonic the Hedgehog, you had Mario brothers, all these other games. And so they wanted kind of to have donkey Kong. That was another one. They wanted to have an animal-themed uh, video game. And so they they got this game company developing a game for them. And they started it. And it wasn't Crash Bandicoot. It was Willy the Wombat. <laughs> so,
1: oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yes, yes. That's what's fun. It was Willy the Wombat was going to be the video game. And as the game evolved, as they were developing it, as it was crashing into, because in the game, you go in and you you destroy things like walls, or not walls, like uh, boxes and things. I played a little bit of it uh, on the PlayStation. And it, the Wombat, Willy the Wombat, just didn't make sense. So they named it Crash Bandicoot. Now, we know wombats are, are pretty amazing with their butts and they like to, they can crush <laughs> to <laughs> covered that. That's a fun episode. It was episode 255. You've got, you've got to go back and listen to wombats. They are amazing creatures. So Crash Bandicoot became you know part of our, our, our popular culture, especially in video games. So this species that they found, uh, they named it after the video game. The video game wasn't named after it. It was named after the video game. Ah, good so, clarification. Yeah, got it. Yeah, 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 mm-hmm. yeah. There you go. There you go. There you go. All right, so that's kind of you know the gist of it. We've covered marsupials again, and we're going to cover them again in the future, obviously, because so many fun ones to cover. Angie, just physiology wasn't a ton. I I know the repro is a big part of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Things I found, I mean, bandicoots sadly only live two to three years in the wild. They they don't survive very long. Uh, That's that's pretty common for marsupials. you know some of the things i i found interesting is they do have sharp claws because they are diggers so similar to a species we just covered very recently the pouch is rear facing right so yes yeah.
1: the pouch is rear facing mm-hmm. yeah
0: yeah so that's similar to the wombat right because i remember that in the wombat i found that interesting
1: yeah it seems backwards but uh it works and then they're not in there that long either like yeah. uh like kangaroos the yeah, yeah. upward facing pouch. So, yeah. but it's it's
0: because when they're digging, right? They don't mm-hmm. want to you know, kick all that dirt into their no, pouch. Well, they,
1: and, and and they dig a lot. I mean, they yeah. they're definitely they have sharp claws in the front and in the hind feet. They do most of digging, I think, with their their front uh, front claws uh, to help form that perfectly snout sized hole uh, to snuff around in. And bandicoots have a very well developed uh, sense of smell to help them locate all the different introvert um, invertebrates that they're eating. But, Chris, I was also reading about uh, the fact that bandicoots, along with having a good sense of smell, which is really important, and that big nose of theirs, uh, they also have highly sensitive nerves that our researchers think are used to help them detect movement as the prey, the little grubs or other invertebrates, wiggle around under the soil.
0: Oh, yeah. The, the, the very adaptive, very adaptive yeah, to their environment. Really, uh, yeah. yeah, well, did you? I don't know if you saw this, but they're fast. They're they're very fast fifteen miles per hour or twenty four kilometers per hour.
1: Yeah, bandicoots can even jump a meter at a time. So they and they have almost a, a, a weird looking gait. It's uh, I mean, I call it a gallop, but it's not like a gallop, like a horse. But it's interesting. And uh, if you watch some of the videos, uh, it's they almost hop like an inchworm mm-hmm. because they they have really long hind feet that the look almost like kangaroo legs. And so they hop along like an inchworm when they're just at like cruising speed, uh, but when they need to, those long legs can make them pivot and run pretty darn fast to escape a predator. So I didn't see any of that on video, probably because it happened so fast and they're nocturnal, so uh, it's it's hard to see. But it, they can get away. Uh, but when they're just lumbering around, they look kind of silly. It's uh, and I, I guess it's somewhat similar to how the Crash Bandicoot moved in the video game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You
0: kind of like spin around. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm
1: like, oh. So, but they're fun. They're fun to watch move. I really enjoy it. And especially with the Eastern Bard, because they have that little, those bars on their rump that just, they're just darling.
0: Yeah, they are. They are. Well, I mean, before we get to what they eat, like you mentioned predators, you know, before Europeans got there and brought all these introduced species, dingoes. Snakes, uh, large birds, owls would, would pick them off. Eagles. But, yeah. But then the introduction of foxes, feral cats, wild dogs uh, has really uh, hit them hard. And, and then, you know, like we talked in the, I believe it was the, the wombat episode, we talked about rabbits, uh, some of these invasive species. But rabbits are, are a potential threat to them because they're in direct competition with food. You know, and then you have the Eastern gray kangaroo populations booming because of, you know, uh, man-made deforestation things going on there. So, I don't know. There, there's a there's this whole perfect storm, I think, that really knocked that Eastern bandicoot population down to where they went extinct in the wild. But fortunately, zoos Victoria and others have, have worked hard to save them. Really quick before we jump to repro... It, what's interesting about bandicoot's Angie's already talked about some of that insects. So omnivores, you know, they, they do eat plants, but they do like insects, spiders, eggs, reptiles, uh, but do like, you know, plant matter roots, uh, seeds, berries, things like that. So it's going to depend on the species of bandicoot that you run into and what's in the region, what's available, but general omnivores, you know, so, so that's what they eat.
1: Yeah, and I was reading if food is really scarce, depending on where they live, they'll even eat scorpions.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. There's yeah.
1: another reason of why I care, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, get some of those scorpions. Uh, but, you know, they're just, they're fun, right? I mean, what's some yeah. of the fun behaviors that, that oh. you found with them?
1: Well, with Eastern Bar Bandicoots, in their diet, a study showed that they like berries. So mm. Okay. okay. Uh, you know, it's just, yeah. it's kind of fun to think of them eating anywhere, things from like grubs to beetles, to vegetation to berries so and you know with a little side of a uh, scorpion yep <laughs> so, yep yeah really really adaptable um and depending on what's around which is awesome but in general the bandicoot's are nocturnal so they're going to emerge uh, at dusk and they're going to basically just start foraging for food that's what they do all night long. Uh, and it's a lot of work digging those little holes and and snuffing around for um, any prey items um, and or foraging, once again, depending on the food source and the time of year. And so during the day, they're going to rest. And bandicoots will tend to rest in nests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and these nests, once again, depending on the species and depending on where they live, um, are usually not much more than just like a little shallow depression in the ground. They'll put some grass over top of it uh, and just hang out in their nest. The bandicoots are not social. They're very solitary. They only come together during breeding. And so in a nest, you're only going to find one bandicoot or maybe a mom with her babies before they're weaned. And bandicoots are super happy just to rest in their nest uh, throughout the day, and they are not going to come out unless they are threatened, um, and that's when they'll run from a predator uh, at pretty high speeds. The home range for bandicoots in general is, is, is pretty large considering how small they are. For males, it's going to be about 100 acres or about 40 hectares. Um, and for females, it's going to be about 75 acres or 30 hectares. So, their territories do overlap some, but that's a, a pretty good region to cover, uh, f- you know, looking for food um, in, uh, throughout the nighttime.
0: Well, one of my most favorite behaviors that we've covered with the marsupial is the quaka and... The myth that, because I can see it coming up every now and then on different videos and posts and stuff on Instagram or other social media, how the female like expels the baby when it's being chased. It's just, because I was watching a, a a sequence on this marsupial, it's, it's animals on Netflix. It, it's very fascinating where a gray kangaroo is being chased by a Dingo and the baby falls out. And I'm like, oh, it's like a quaka. But we, we dispelled that myth, right? It's it's just the muscle contraction. She doesn't purposely drop her baby like, here, eat this thing.
1: You know? Correct. Yes. It's just the uh, the cortisol from trying to get away from a yeah,
0: predator. Yeah, from a predator. Poor quokkas. Oh, they're so cute.
1: And it may work towards her advantage to get away, but yes, yeah, she's not actively.
0: Oh, I got to get over to Western Australia and throw Throwing them, your like, child you know. in front
1: of a dingo. <laughs> That's for Thing. oh they're so but, cute though oh, oh <laughs> so cute. the
0: quakas are the best that's that's mm. an amazing episode that was episode 194 cute quirky quackas. i highly highly <laughs> suggest that one but what's there's some fascinating stuff with the bandicoots in repro and one fact i found jaw dropping which i know you're going to talk about here in a second so what's unique about them
1: Oh, yeah, Chris, there's definitely some fun facts about bandicoot reproduction. But there's also several things that aren't really reported um, because they're nocturnal. And so with the breeding behavior, there's not a ton known about how they behave in the wild. But for instance, um, when a male and female do come together um, to breed, There's a courtship behavior that's been reported in long-nosed bandicoots Mm -hmm. uh, where that basically pretty simple, the male will go around and smell the female and he'll follow her for a couple hours, basically. And I guess if she likes him, uh, then they will copulate. Uh, And so this only lasts for a couple seconds and then they're back to being solitary. They They go their own ways. And so I would presume that for other bandicoots, it's probably similar, um, with a very re- reduced and almost boring, if you will, courtship behavior, uh, uh, courtship behaviors. Um, however, what is not boring and it, it, does need to be mentioned here. So if there's small children listening, I am going to be talking about the male reproductive anatomy really mm-hmm, quick, mm-hmm. uh, Like most marsupials, the male bandicoot, including the eastern barred bandicoot, does have a bifurcated penis. That reminds me of the
0: echidna. That's the one species (laughs) we got to cover again, too, because they have, what, four? (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. And so by bifurcated, this is just two. Two, yeah. Uh, So, uh, but yes, it's very, very unique and Mm. very ancient um, as... Uh, we don't see that in uh, more modern day, uh, you know, placenta mammals. So mm-hmm. uh, pretty cool stuff.
0: Well, and the, and the reasoning is if going back and, and maybe it, it's a relic in some is they had like two uteri or two cervix, it, it, it has to do with the male anatomy matching up with the female anatomy to, you know, produce offspring. So that's why you have, you know, uh, either two or four, uh, depending on the species. But there's more, right? <laughs> there's more. There's more fascinating facts with this. Marsupials are amazing.
1: Yeah. Probably the one that blew me out of my chair and just, you know, had, I had so much fun with was their gestation period. So male yeah. and female bandicoot come together, they breed, fertilization takes place. The gestation period for the bandicoot in general is drum roll. <laughs> Twelve days. That's what blew me away. Like what? Twelve days. That's insane. I
0: mean, rabbits are at least two months, right? Sixty or sixty days. Is that right?
1: Well, Chris, um, you actually bring up a really good point. I have a little quiz for you. Oh no. Ah, uh, so a rabbit days. Oh,
0: I messed up on rabbits. It's it could be as low as thirty days, right?
1: And twenty to thirty-five. Yeah, cats mm-hmm. are
0: two months. Cats are sixty days. Mm-hmm. Okay
1: um what's gonna be elephant more- 22 months i'm done. <laughs> very <Okay>. good uh <laughs> there is one other animal that is known for a very short gestation period of about 12 to 13 days
0: you said animal or mammal mammal okay except like flies <laughs> that's like <laughs> two days 12 days 12 days is nothing that is and the only reason I know with marsupials can do it, and I know you're going to cover it, is because they're so underdeveloped. So it's got to be like what the bilby, it's got to be another marsupial.
1: North America.
0: Oh, possums? Is it 12 yeah. days? Was it 12 days? Virginia
1: possum, 12 to 13. Okay.
0: Wow. Okay. So maybe
1: a little bit longer, uh, but uh, God, yes. We'll
0: have to find that episode. That was a long time ago. Yes.
1: We did now, that. for my quiz of of. Other animals that have very short gestation periods. Which animal has the next shortest? A squirrel, a rabbit, a mouse, or a hamster?
0: Oh, okay. We just established rabbits at 60 days or 60, 30 days. Mm-hmm. Uh, mice. I, w- I would think mice are very underdeveloped. I'm sure hamsters are very underdeveloped. What was the other one? I forgot. Uh, okay, <laughs> whatever. Oh, I think it's a, it's, I think
1: it's a squirrel. squirrel. Yeah,
0: Squirrels are up there too. They're pretty underdeveloped, but I would imagine they're probably a little bit longer.
1: Yeah, they're 30 to 40 days. So they're okay. actually a little bit more than uh rabbit. And the mouse is going to be, depending on the species, nineteen
0: right. to twenty-one. Yeah, they're the pretty short.
1: The hamster is going to be sixteen to twenty-three.
0: Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the pinkies—they're so underdeveloped mm-hmm. with mom, and you know, so they—they they, and they nest and keep them in there and they nurse, but. You know, that's quick. 12 days. Like 12 12 days. days. Very brief. That's it. It's like you breed. Within two weeks, you have a baby on the ground. That's not on the ground. I mean, with the marsupial in the pouch.
1: Yeah. And what's also Mm. really unique about the bandicoot family is that their embryos um, form a placenta. Yeah. It's like, so what's this going on? Seen, yeah, they're so silly. This is not seen in other marsupials, except quals and wombats do a little bit too. And the placenta is not super developed. It lacks chorionic villi and um, other layers that are found in like you know, more developed mammal placentas. But yeah, they they still have one. It connects to the uterine wall. And why Why didn't
0: we cover this in repro like when I taught graduate level reproduction in animals like I didn't I talked a little bit about marsupials but not a lot like there is so much we could study in, in these animals and learn.
1: Yeah, you it's know, super fascinating. Oh, it's crazy. Uh, well, it's yeah. like they were testing things out. Like, how mm-hmm. many penises do we want? Do mm-hmm. we want placentas or don't we? Yeah. Uh, should we be pregnant for you know a small period of time yeah. and have underdeveloped babies? And yeah, you know, and it's
0: survival of the fittest. It's like yeah. what they all crawl in the fur and they all have to latch on to a teat or you're mm-hmm. done.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, the marsupials are nuts. They're
1: nuts. they're fun. They're so fun. yeah. They are fun. They are fun. And so, uh, as far as uh, like a breeding season, um, in Tasmania, uh, bandicoots are going to be born between late May and December. So... It's big, uh, huh? Yeah. That's and with I the Eastern to. Bar Bandicoot, the females do have eight nipples, uh, but she typically produces a maximum of five young in a litter with an average of two to three. So, in general, with bandicoots, I think a common litter size is... Is three to four. Now what's really fascinating is because of this short gestation period, a female can produce anywhere from three to four litters during a breeding season. So if we take the eastern barred bandicoot as an example with her reproductive capacity, one female can produce basically up to 16 young in a breeding season. So, I mean, their ability theoretically to rebound um, with some of these populations are, that are in crisis is theoretically good. Uh, now, as Chris mentioned, being born pretty undeveloped, uh, you are at some disadvantages, right? So I, no. their, their juvenile or infant slash juvenile mortality rate um, is, you know, pretty high. So Well,
0: and to take this full circle, when you talked about reintroduction science, you know, yeah, we can produce or, and under human care, produce a lot of eastern barred bandicoots, but they're putting them in predator-free areas. Because if we go and just d- drop them everywhere, the predators are going to go have a heyday. And we found that out. Again, this is all tying up with this podcast. you keep following this week by week. All these stories are interchangeable. The Hawaiian crow, the reason the Hawaiian crow is not doing well is because they're getting picked off by the predators. You know, they go out and put a few out hoping they can establish themselves, establish ranges, rear chicks, all of this. And they're getting picked off by the predators because there's so few of them. So it's just challenging that reintroduction science, That's a really great point. That's a really great point. We really need to focus more. Yeah, on that. we should
1: look for like a, a specialist. Or maybe a, mm-hmm. a roundtable It'll be really interesting mm-hmm. to talk about. Yeah, more uh, of it. Of the, the roles of uh, you know breeding animals under human care, and then and then the science behind actually reintroducing them. And yeah, it's, it's so fascinating. So and and obviously we need more of it as we move forward with all these species in crisis. Absolutely. So, but So back to bandicoots, though, yep. um, the, the pups are going to be weaned around day 55, and they do hang out in the mom's nest until um, they're about 86 days old. So they'll, they'll, they'll forage with her and kind of learn a little bit of the ropes, um, and then they're off on their own, and they mature pretty fast, um, and they'll be breeding around six months old. So yeah, if there's no predators around, they, they are able to, uh, potentially rebound pretty quickly. However, that did lead me to one of the papers that I mentioned earlier on the podcast, um, about trying to learn more of how to get these numbers up, how to get these, the offspring, if theoretically, if an Eastern barred bandicoot can have 16 offspring per season, how do we get most of those 16 to survive? Mm-hmm. And yes, the predator proof fencing is definitely helpful, but overall just having a fitness is really important. And so in researchers were noticing that a lot, not as many, uh, Eastern barbanic were making it as they should. And so they started to investigate kind of this, um, This theory known as mate choice, uh, as far as letting the female help select the male that she feels will help increase her offspring's fitness. Yeah, I'm not really saying that right, because it's not about feelings. It's actually more about olfactory senses. It is. It is. And Chris and I are huge fans of mate Good. choice. Chris probably even more so than myself. I uh, super, <laughs> super mate choice dork. Dork, which is very weird. much. That's why I love him. Uh, but yeah, it, it's 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 just the more research we're doing about it, the more we're finding out that it's really important, um, evolutionarily speaking, for females to basically have some kind of selection in who they want to breed with, and that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that. Mimics what they would do in the wild. And when they're living under human care uh, and in some of these breeding programs, they don't always get that because the researchers and the zoologists um, are trying to put them together with a certain male that they want them to breed with because our data shows that this male is the most genetically diverse from you. And so therefore, you should breed with him. And of course, they will end up breeding, but their offspring may not actually be as fit as they potentially could be. So I'm
0: itching, I'm itching, I'm itching I know. So, you can anyways, see me, you can see me on camera. I know. It's I so, love this topic. I love this really, topic. It's really, it's
1: just so fascinating. Yeah. And, uh, and the research has shown that there's tons of different cues about why we like mates. If you think mm-hmm. about peacock, it's going to be visual. Um, so there's behavior in there and there's some physiology and some morphology. Uh, but a lot of it does boil down to space sensory uh sensory triggers olfactory being one of them well can i explain and it can i explain
0: it you I'm, can i wanted to in. i wanted to in because you brought it up you brought it up and, uh, and i, I do i love talking about this one
1: and i we promise i will get back to the actual paper about eastern <laughs> like, bard bandicoot mate choice
0: i'll make it quick angie i'm sorry no, i'm sorry don't. to put in i'm sorry to put I'm in. I'm sorry to put drink in. my tea i love this okay okay So I, I did, I, I delved into this because this goes back to, God, Richard Dawkins again, the interview we talked about, uh, you know, looking at cloning the mammoth and I talked about, well, you know, I was looking at certain genetics, MHCs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. That's why I think they they needed me on that project because I was looking at, you know, doing work with, uh, they do need
1: you on that project, buddy. They do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, endangered Somali wild ass. So it got me down this whole thing on immune genetics, and then it led me into mate choice. And I boil it down because I love teaching this in my classes. Is any all of us who you know are adults and and you know we're dating and and um, you know trying to attract mates or whatever? We know certain people we've been around smell worse to us than others. You know, certain people smell really good. Their natural body odors, whatever, really smell good to us, but some others they smell really awful. And the way I used to always explain this to my students is like my 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 siblings smell awful to me. <laughs> they just
1: do. <laughs> Your poor I think, siblings.
0: I know I love them. I love them. But they just they just do because They've boiled it down to immune genetics. We're very similar genetically. So the smell has come in to where, ooh, you know, we obviously don't want to have babies with our siblings because the genetics would be too similar. So they've done a lot of trials with this where they had, you know, women or men wear t-shirts at night, and then and somebody in the lab would go not knowing who was who, you know, A, B, C, D, E. They would go and assign a score to the smell on the shirts. And the ones that smelled the best to them, they would go and look at their immune genetics. And they discovered that they their immune genetics were very diverse from each other. And the ones that smelled worse to them, they graded them was like, oh, that smell is awful. The researchers have discovered that the immune genetics were very similar. And they've done this... We've done this in ungulates. We've done this. We've done this in some like big cats and bears. Now they're doing this in barred bandicoots, I guess. To yeah, see, well, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. And so, actually, great, uh, great for bringing all that up. And yeah, the immune uh, genetic.
0: And just to tie all this up, and so it, it, it basically what they're finding is this major histocompatibility complex, and you want diverse immune genes in your offspring, so they withstand diseases parasites other things better so i was looking at it as a standpoint of pregnancy trying to find compatible genes for pregnancy that that's where i go back, way back to the cloning and all that stuff but in in these populations that angie's talking about i guess in eastern bandicoot and angie will fill us in on the paper is you don't want similar genetics you know so that's where mate choice comes in if you'd allowed them to select their mates generally they're going to select somebody with with immune genes that are different from them through smell without even knowing right without even knowing and that's the
1: thing too is i'm not a geneticist but i do think that just looking at okay this one is less related because it's its cousin's cousin Mm mm-hmm is one way to look at genetics. And that's why we got to get a stud bookkeeper on here to talk about some of that on how zoos typically try to uh, talk about relatedness as far as um, when they're trying to to make some of these pairs uh, to maximize genetic diversity, which is really important, obviously. But I do think that it's like a little bit different than the diversity of your immune, um, your immune genetics or your major histocompatibility factors. So By letting the animal have access, by letting a female have access to a couple different males that are genetically diverse from them, maybe one a little bit less than the other one, but if you let her pick, there might be the ability to improve offspring outcomes. And so this hadn't really been tested before in marsupials. The only example uh, that I could find was there uh, was a test in the agile antikinus. I'm saying that mm. so wrong. I had mm-hmm. to Google it. It's a species of marsupial um, that's small in a carnivore. It's found in Australia. So sorry for all my Australian fans. I'm sure I'm not saying that right. Agile antikines. I don't know. Oh, Anyhow... Yeah. So there was, there was a study on those guys with mate choice, um, years ago in in 2007, and it was found to, uh, potentially improve off, um, offspring outcomes and, and reduce inbreeding. But in 2018 researchers in the Eastern barred bandicoot took it a step further. They wanted to give, um, females that were in this captive breeding program and the recovery pro- and release program the ability to select her male. And what they found is that when they gave the females their mate choice, basically by letting her smell different males and recording which male she spent the most time around um, over um, a multi-day per- period. And then because of science, then also selecting the male she didn't spend that much time with, so I guess choice B, uh, and, and, and then going through and looking at her litter and how her litters performed, the researchers found that by allowing a female to have an opportunity to choose a mate and spend more time with him and pick one over the other, it improved her reproductive outcomes in the conservation breed, uh, breeding program. And so the researchers surmised that this might be really beneficial when when you can apply it, right? Sometimes there's maybe just not enough males or they live too far away. Um but basically the females that were paired with males that they preferred compared to males that they didn't prefer, um they were significantly more likely to produce young and then preferred pairings also resulted in earlier conception of young than uh, being with choice B. So, for the long term, this could really uh, put in, potentially help improve their numbers, which is what they're, you know, what was what the ultimate goal of um, the Eastern Bandicoot uh, breeding and recovery and reintroduction programs. Awesome. Yay. Yeah, science I know. For the I win. Love
0: science. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love made Choice, too. May, oh, yeah. That's, oh, I could have dorked on that for forever. It's just such a fascinating topic. And, uh, you know, and it, we, and, it, and I think it's because we can all apply it in our own lives. You know, I look back at my own, you know, any of us in our history, and it's like, I, I mean, I love my siblings to death, but yeah, they say, they, they, "Sorry, you guys stink, leave me alone." <laughs> Go I'm
1: gonna, I, I'm gonna like see my siblings in a in a couple of weeks, and I'm gonna sniff them, and they're gonna be like, "What are you doing, you weirdo?" Because I always do weird things, anyways. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I'll be like, well, so Chris says. Yeah, um, so stay, stay tuned. away. From I'll, re- me, yeah. I'll report back if they, okay. they stink okay. or not. So,
0: well, I mean, looking at conservation, it, it, bandicoots. You know, the eastern is endangered. Bard, the western bards vulnerable. There are some that are you know least concern, like you mentioned, the northern brown bandicoots least concern, the spiny bandicoot. So, if a few of the species in. A few of the species in New Guinea are endangered, you know, on some of the islands there. So, you know, across the board, not doing that great. They really aren't. So, you know, it's, we got to keep fighting for them. Australia, you know, keep doing what you're doing. Zeus Victoria and all the universities down there and people like Chantel and and others. I know we have a lot of fans uh, down here near me uh, across the Tasman Sea. So thank you for what you're doing for all your animals there. So what are some of the things we can do to help bandicoots, Angie?
1: Well, yeah, for all of our friends in Australia, Tasmania, New Guinea, or wherever bandicoots live, there's several things that you can do to help. Have a nice lawn that has lots of plants with native vegetation. Um, a lot of bandicoots like dense shrubbery because that's where they'll hide and nest down during the day undercover. Um, So if you have shrubbery of native vegetation, that's awesome. This is one of my favorites. Um, have a compost bin. Mm. My compost bin right now in Florida is rocking. It is wild. It's so wild. I took a video of the worms because I'm that big of a dork, uh, <laughs> and I might post it on social media. So I'll put a disclaimer. Like if, you, yep. if you're sensitive, but I love it. Like every day, John and I were such dorks. We're like, "Did you see the worms today? Oh my gosh! I fed them watermelon. They're going crazy. That's nice. Uh, but yes, the compost bins help because they of course, um, attract a lot of worms and bandicoots can eat the worms. Um, Having a worm farm is also great not only for your soil in your yard, but also for bandicoots and really anything that basically creates um, an environment that's rich in soil invertebrates. So happy soils, happy invertebrates mean happy bandicoots. Definitely keep your cats in, uh, your dogs in at nighttime and Yeah, just just keep those bushes or or let your grass grow, especially if it's your backyard or something where maybe, you know, a lot of people don't see it. Let that grass grow dense and thick and just make it a nice little home for bandicoots. And then if you get up in the morning and you see those little holes where their snouts were digging uh, for food, send us a picture because that would make me really happy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes,
0: yes. Well, yeah, I mean, we, we you know, especially for for our friends, yeah, again in Australia, th- those are great tips. Now, who are we highlighting this week that are out there doing the hard work?
1: Well, Chris, we definitely have to highlight this week Zoo's Victoria uh, for their recovery and collaboration and reintroduction of the Eastern Barred Bandicoot, saving it from extinction. It's just incredible, and so uh, Zoo's Victoria has partnered with all these different organizations. And they played a huge role in saving the species since 1991. uh, Zoos Victoria has bred more than 650 bandicoots. And of course, they're reintroducing them into these three different locations with predator free fences, or sorry, predator exclusion fences. So, uh, they're just doing a lot and they're following the science and they're working together multi-million dollar campaigns. Like I said, uh, it's a lot of collaboration and it's super impressive and it's the stuff that gets me really, really excited about why we need to care and support, um, our local zoos that are accredited and doing this kind of work. Um, and so if you go to www.zoozoo.org.au. You can learn a lot more about um, Zoo Victoria and what they're doing to help basically save the Eastern Bar Bandicoot and, of course, several other species. Ways that you can help as a listener um, just increase people's awareness about bandicoots and, especially, this story, this conservation story about the Eastern Bar Bandicoot. Um, you can also visit your zoo uh, by. Visiting your zoo, you're helping support their research efforts and all these collaborations and and helping them fight for these animals to live and not be extinct if you can donate, that's great. Um, there's a, a, master conservation plan for the Eastern Bandicoot, uh, that's was started in 2019 and it goes until 2024. And so if you go to zoo.org.au slash donate, there's more information about that. Um, because money donated helps keep this Uh, this program thriving and helps keep the population of Eastern bandicoots rebounding um, as they've done for the past 30 years. So if you like to get involved and you live locally, uh, you know, learn about conservation efforts, not necessarily at zoos, but even um, locally where you live, uh, whether it's a a nature center or local gardeners, community gardens. Yeah. Just, just take action for local wildlife in general, because your local wildlife is very unique and they have a story to tell and you should help fight for them. And so we can help share it and they can keep continuing to live in the wild.
0: Yeah. No, it reminds me of uh, just that recent interview I had with Thomas Realstone. Uh, You know, we talk about New Zealand, and he he, at the end he really talks about that. Like wherever you are in the world, conservation starts in your own backyard, and one hundred
1: percent, yeah, yeah.
0: And then you can branch out and you know help animals around the world. But great point, great point. Just to tie all this up, we've mentioned some previous episodes. You know, from down under, other marsupials. Going way back, episode 59, Tasmanian Devils. That was a fun one. Like, oh, they're just such a, they have an amazing conservation (laughs) story. Yeah,
1: that's a fun one.
0: Especially with the virus they were dealing with and how they've relocated them to islands to save them. Uh, Then talk about reintroductions on the mainland in Australia. So that's a fun episode. Episode 93, koalas. A lot of, you know, that's very iconic. Everybody's favorite episode 136 red kangaroos and then all the other ones that we've already mentioned like episode 169 was opossum uh, the one there in north america so lots of stuff for you to listen to if you want to learn more about marsupials and the amazing species down here at this end of the world but angie you brought your a-game today thank you it was awesome
1: thank you everyone for listening and supporting wildlife and conservation please share this episode uh, and thank you bandicoots
0: listen Learn. Share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.